So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that and uh, turn to the book of Zephaniah. If you don't know where that is, the easiest way to find it is find one of four big books, two-thirds through your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Once you find that, you just need to turn back three books from Matthew to a tiny little book called Zephaniah. While you're looking for that, let me bring us up to speed for the sake of our guests. We have been in an extended Minor Prophets series for the course of the last two months. They're called Minor, not because they're less significant or because they're Minor League, simply because they're shorter. The majority of them are only three chapters. There are some that are upwards of 11, maybe 12 chapters, but they're all much shorter, more succinct books that are prophetic books to Israel just before their 70-year exile. And so we've been looking at these books, understanding that God's word for them then is also his word for us today, because the way that he dealt with people then is the way he deals with us today. And there's principles from these books that we can apply to our lives as well. And now that we've been here for a couple months, you kind of might start feeling like these little books are starting to jumble together a little bit, right? Like book after book after book, you're, you're noticing a few trends that God is angry with the people of Israel on account of their sin and rebellion. They're, they're turning away from God. He sends in a prophet. They don't listen. God talks about his impending judgment or impending doom that's going to come. One nation is about to wipe out another nation, so on and so forth. And eventually, as you read through these books, you start to get this impression An impression that that I've heard a lot, and it's not new to the Christian faith. Why is it that God always seems so angry? He seems like such an angry God, doesn't he? In fact, like I said, this isn't new. In the first, second, and third centuries, there was a movement that rose up in the ranks in the midst of the Christian faith, and a lot of Christians believed this. It was called Marcionism. Marcion believed that there was a God of the Old Testament who he called the Demiurge God. He was the creator of the universe, but he hated and despised what he had made. And he read through the books of the Old Testament. He says, yeah, sure it is. Sure enough, God is a pretty angry God. But then there was the God of the New Testament. He was the supreme God, the loving and gracious and benevolent God who sent his son Jesus into the world to save the world from its darkness and to subvert the will of the Demiurge God. Now, of course, by the third century, this was refuted as a heresy. But here's what I want to propose to you. Here's what I want you to consider. Even though we might not believe that there's a wrathful, vengeful Old Testament God and a a super blissful, kind, supreme New Testament God, sometimes when we read through these books, we kind of get that impression. And maybe, just maybe, we have a similar question today, a question of why is God so angry with his people Why is he so angry with his people? You know, I'm not very quick to uh, denounce other preachers or pastors, but one of the things that I've been noticing a whole lot is a lot of reputable, very well-known pastors are having less and less interest with the Old Testament. We heard this recently, just uh, not less than a year ago, from Andy Stanley. We've heard it from other pastors who are uh, very familiar to most of us and so we see this grappling 
with what's happening in the Old Testament and what's happening in the New Testament. And I share all this with you because I believe the book of Zephaniah is better than any other in Scripture to help us understand the two sides of the same coin. To understand that in one sense, God is a God of justice. But in another sense, God is loving and benevolent and merciful. He's both of these at the same time. This is what I love about this book. On the one hand, it has some of the most intense imagery of God's wrath and his vengeance and his justice. But at exactly the same time, it has some of the most quoted and requoted passage in scripture talking about God's love and his compassion. Both of them at the same time. It's not an either or. So here's the first note that I put in your note sheet that I want you to see about kind of the, the foundation of the book of Zephaniah. Put it this way. God forces us to hold together both his love and his justice. His love and his justice. There's no book in all of scripture than Zephaniah to help us unpack what that looks like in the real world and to understand more fully how justice and love are intertwined. So, in order to do that, I want to give you a sense of what's happening in these three chapters. If we had more time, I'd want to read all three chapters to you. You can do that later. It'll only take you maybe 25, 30 minutes if you're an especially slow reader like I am. But let me read a few passages to you to get the flavor. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah. Take note of that. Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Verse 2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all of humankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So God, it's, it's kind of like God's ready to get out his magic eraser pen and totally wipe out everything that he has made. And as you read through the first chapter of Zephaniah, you can't help but be reminded of the book of Genesis chapter 1. It reads exactly the same way. In the book of Genesis, we hear these stories of out of chaos comes order out of darkness comes light out of the abyss comes creation Zephaniah reads exactly the opposite way from creation to destruction from light into chaos it reads like an unfolding an unshaking of everything that God has made everything is beginning to become undone and God is done with the wickedness of his creation. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what has God so mad? What is, what is he so angry about? Look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The vast names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs, to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech, who is an Amorite god who required child sacrifices, the sacrificing of your own children, those who turn back from the following the Lord and neither seek the Lord 
nor inquire of him. So here's hopefully a bit of a picture into what's happening in Judah at this time. The temple of God is being used as a home for all the false gods that Judah has accumulated and accepted over the years. We have the god Baal, the god of the starry host. We have the god, I just mentioned, Molech. And it's also the new brothel for prostitution. So it's not as though the temple isn't being used. It's actually being frequented a whole lot, just not for the reasons that you would come to expect. That's what's happening inside the church at this time. Number two, leaders of Israel, they're perpetrating injustice. They're not just victims. In fact, later on in chapter 3, Zephaniah will tell them that God doesn't even recognize the leaders any longer. The prophets, the priests, the kings, the leaders, those who are in economic control, all of them are exploiting the poor. All of them are leading with dishonest gain. Number three, connected to that, the economic centers are engaged in crooked lending. So I know some of us here, you know, if you got a bank loan and you got a prime rate of 29.9%, you're like, wow, the outrage, how dare they? That's nothing in comparison to what's going on here. The weak and the poor are exploited. That's just common day. That's just a typical day during this time. And number four, verse five mentions the god Molech, this god of an enemy nation, the Amorites. And they are now worshiping this god Molech. And the way that you worship him is you sacrifice one of your children on an iron plate. And in that way, when you sacrifice your child, God will bless you. Molech will bless you on account of that sacrifice. And that's what's happening in Israel at this time. So here's where we're at. Just like last week with the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you say that, the book of Zephaniah is written just before the Babylonians come in. I got the timeline up for you once again. You can take a look at this. So we are going to be going back in time 15 to maybe 20 years from where we were last week. The difference between these two books, you remember that Habakkuk was mainly uh, a little bit different than most of the other prophets where he was accusing God, saying, God, where are you? Why are you allowing these things to happen? So he's not functioning like a traditional prophet who speaks God's word to God's people. He's asking God, why are you doing this? But Zephaniah is functioning as a more traditional prophet, and he is bringing God's judgment to Judah just before the Babylonians come in and wipe them out, and then ensues the 70-year exile. So it's right around the same time as what we were looking at last week. And Zephaniah points forward to a time when a great army will come, and he will wipe out all of Judah. But there seems to be a glimmer of hope. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps, circle, highlight, underline, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps. 
So Zephaniah, he writes this letter. He gets all the people in Judah corralled together. And he says, listen to me. God's judgment is coming. The freight train is coming. All of you need to repent. Put on sackcloth and ashes. Turn from your wicked ways. And if you follow God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, maybe, just maybe, God will relent in sending disaster. Maybe, just maybe, God will turn and not do what he has promised. And so God, he's calling on someone, anyone in Jerusalem or elsewhere to seek the Lord. And so the question we have to ask is, okay, what happens? What's the end outcome? How does Judah respond? Well, the answer is in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Look at this. Woe to the city of oppressors. He's talking about Jerusalem. Rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. And then look down to verse 7. Here's the outcome. Of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed. Nor all my punishments come upon her. But circle highlight underline they were still eager to accept to act corruptly in all they did so as you listen you see that they have no interest whatsoever in following god they have no interest in turning away from their evil and wicked schemes they're perfectly content to keep doing what they're doing and the end result is verse eight my decision is to gather all the nations and pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Let's stop right there. At this point, you got to be wondering, didn't we hear this last week? And the week before that? And the week before that? And the week before that? Haven't we heard this story before? I mean, like, didn't we start this in early June? And we're still here, almost into September. School starts next week, by the way. We're almost there. And still, we're hearing the same thing over and over and over again. Why is it that God keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again? Well, here's a principle that I want to share with you that I think most parents are going to understand. Second point in your note sheet. Dads usually have to say the same thing more than once don't they? Can I get an amen? I know we're not Pentecostal. Thank you. Dads, how many times do you have to tell your kids the same thing over and over and over again? And what's the ultimate desire? The ultimate desire is not to reprimand your kids. It's not to take away their favorite toy. It's not to send them to their room. You just want them to listen. And you speak at nauseam, pulling your hair out because you love them. You love them. <laughs> but you want them to listen. Wouldn't it be sweet if like your teenage son, he was in the living room and he was just about to smack his sister, but then you gave him a look and then he said, oh right, father, I remember 12 years ago you told me never to hit my sister and you said, that's right, my son, thank you. And then your son said, no, thank you, father. <laughs> right? No, of course not. You got to tell him over and over and over again. It's why we've had eight prophets up to this point, and this is the ninth, and there's going to be many more coming after this. And what you might not have realized 
is that we have, since the very first book that we've looked at, the first book is Jonah, all the way up to this point, we have had 250 years that have elapsed from all the prophets that we have read. And still, Israel, they're not getting better, they're getting worse. And trust me, we have a God who is saying, I should have only had to send one prophet. I've sent nine, and I have to send many, many more. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I love you, and I want you to turn away from your wickedness and from your evil schemes. That's why I tell you over and over and over again, it's love that drives a parent to pull out their hair and to say at nauseum things that they've said before. And that leads to the second, or to the, the third point. Dad's actions usually depend on their children's response. Dad's actions usually depend on their children's response. Like I said, trust me, there is a God in heaven who says, I should have only had to send one prophet. Just one. And see, I, I think many of us, we, we look at this book, and we sit, and we look at it so wrong sometimes. We look and we say, here's an angry God. But when you take the time to read through the pages and hear the stories, you start to get a very different picture. I mean, regardless of your religious faith and background, regardless of your worldview and perspective, regardless of your moral grid, I think if you read through the pages of this book, you wouldn't ask questions like, why is God an angry God? You would say, why is God so slow to sending his wrath? You know, there's a, a quote from a famous theologian. He once said this, only in the comfort of the suburbs do we grow tired and indifferent to God's justice. But in the bloodshed of our own, in the bloodshed of our own loved ones is when we all cry out for injustice. See, it seems to be the exclusive domain of Western Christians in the suburbs who wonder, why is God so angry all the time? The rest of the world is wondering, God, where are you? And why haven't you come yet to make right what was wrong? I had a conversation with a woman who emigrated from Afghanistan 24 years ago, and she has family still there. And with tears in her eyes, she's looking for a way to get her family out. And she's wondering, why, how, could this, how could this happen? And will God make a way? And I think it's important for us to recognize that sometimes we're like a fish in water who's asking, what does it mean to be wet? the culture and environment that we have ourselves in, we, we look at books like this and we say, God, man, take a break, take a breather. Quit being so angry, so wrathful, so judgmental. Let us live. Let live and let live. But here's the thing. We don't serve an angry God. Right? He's not an angry God. He's got rebellious kids. That's what it's all about. And he longs for the day in which we will follow in step with him so that the entire world would flourish and there would be joy and exuberance and happiness. But he says, the farther you run away from me, the more that won't be possible. The more it won't be possible. We serve a God who is driven by love for his people and the creation that he has made. 
One of the things that I shared with you last week, I shared with you that the question isn't, why do bad things happen to good people? Because the whole world is under the condemnation of sin and death. And everywhere we look, we see the taintedness and the brokenness of sin. So the question is, why do good things happen at all? See, here's what would happen if God simply said, you know what? I'm going to give you everything you want. You can have whatever you want. I'm not going to get in your way, right? I'm not going to tell you you can't do that or you can't do this. Just go have fun. Do whatever you want. You know what that would be? It would be hell on earth. That's what it would be. The whole world would begin to unravel, be a dog-eat-dog world. We'll all do whatever we want, and we would trample on the poor and the oppressed. It would be whoever's the strongest survives. And so, yes, God steps in and he says, I am done with the wickedness of my people. I will step in for the sake of my kids and the creation that I have made So that they can see the way in which I made them to flourish and to grow in this world. I must step in. Only a loving God would step in in justice. See, it's not an either or. It's not sometimes God is just, sometimes God is loving. It's a loving God will bring forth justice. That's the way that it is. And Zephaniah seeks to make that point in this book. So, he continues in this, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. I want to read it one more time to you, to see what our response is. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no corruption. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So, here's the life lesson on all of us, on collective humanity, on those who have a sin nature. Dad's kids aren't willing to obey or to accept correction. Dad's kids aren't willing to obey or to accept correction. Regardless of the number of times God tries to intervene and to send a prophet and to say, turn from your wicked ways, can't you see the destruction that you are bringing upon yourself and the people around you? They don't want any part of it. They don't trust in God. They don't draw near to God. There's a blatant unwillingness to listen to him. And then the second point is that dad's kids are more interested in his stuff than in their relationship with him. If you are a member of Gateway and you've been here for a while, you've likely heard me give you my definition of idolatry. Oftentimes we think of idolatry as, you know, bowing down to an image made out of stone. But really, idolatry is very simple. It's when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, and on account of that it becomes a tainted and broken and terrible thing. And by that definition, I think many of us, we can look at our own life and we can say, oh, maybe, just maybe, There's a little bit of idolatry in my life. Where are the ways or the instances in which I have taken something that God has given me that I absolutely love, but I have elevated it to God's status? And because of that, I have misplaced or misoriented the things in my life. And when that happens, everything gets tainted. And that's what we see with Israel As well, they do the same thing. Israel's more interested in creation than their creator. 
They're more interested in their own pleasures, their own success, their own pursuits, their own relationships than they are with their Heavenly Father. And chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 give us this clue. Take a look at verse 18. God says, neither their silver nor their gold, which are stand-ins literally for anything that we value or care for. So in this instance, it's money. You could insert here your job, your workplace, your finances, your marriage, your kids, your yacht, whatever it is, you can fill in the blank. Uh, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. And so this is a God who says, you are my kids, and I love you, and I love you enough to take away the things that are destroying your life in order to bring you back to myself. Because this is the kind of God that we serve, a God who is far more interested in my eternity than cushioning my earthly life. He's far more interested in my eternity with him than cushioning my earthly life. So he says, yes, I will step in. Yes, I will take away these things. I will do whatever it takes to get your attention in order to bring you back to myself. Because otherwise, you'll just keep running in the opposite direction. So where do we go from here? Because there's a lot of bad news here, isn't there? And I think if we have the heart to see it, we can even say, I think there's a lot here that applies to my life too. I want to share with you that remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, I mentioned the name of King Josiah. I want us to turn there and to see what's happening because this story helps us get to the crux of everything Zephaniah wants to bring home today. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. There's four big books in your Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. Find one of those big books, turn with me to 2nd Kings chapter 22. Starting at verse 1. You got it? Let's take a look at this. First two verses. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Could you imagine? Eight. And he is now the king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. I mean, how? How could he possibly do that? He's just an eight-year-old kid. And let me tell you a little bit about his dad and his grandfather. His dad's name was Ammon, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you want to read on that, just look back the last 13 verses before what we just read. And his grandfather is a world-famous, even today, evil person, and his name was Manasseh. He was the one who brought in Molech, the king of the Amorites, and he was the first person in all of Israel to take his firstborn son and to throw him up on the pan and sacrifice him to the false god in hopes that this god would bless his life. So that's his dad and his grandfather. And he's eight years old in the most vile and wicked nation there ever was, And still he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. How could that possibly be the case? 
And so here's what happens. By the age of 18, he decides, now that I'm not just the king, but I'm a full-grown man, he decides that he wants the temple to be cleaned up. And so he takes all the money that he can conjure up, and he says, go and clean it out. Let's see what's in there. And the amazing thing was, over some time, they find scrolls hidden away in a corner somewhere. They pull out the scrolls, and they say, what are these? And they start reading it. They say, oh, I think I know what this is. I think it's called a Bible. Yeah, that's what it is. And then they bring it to the king. Let's just take a look at this. Verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of of the king. So they found the Bible in church and everyone's shocked. All right, that just kind of gives you a picture, a flavor of what's happening in Judah at this time. They're all shocked. The chief priests look at it and say, I think I've heard of one of these before. I think it's written by God. It's one of those Bible things. And the secretary brings it to the king and they read it to him and here's what happens. I sort of picture Josiah He's in a, an open chamber looking out at the city of Jerusalem. And Shaphan, he is reading the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as he's looking out, he looks down at the temple and he sees open prostitution. He looks up on the hillside and he sees yet another child being slaughtered and killed in the name of Molech, the false god. He looks down into the economic center, the market, and he sees dishonest scales. He looks into a corridor or a corner and he sees theft and murder. All around him, he sees injustice. And these five books of the Bible are being read to him. And the end result is he sees the standard of God and just how far the people of Israel had fallen from that standard. And the end result is he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he weeps and wails aloud. And then he tries to bring about real change in Judah. Let's look at chapter 23. I'm going to read just the first seven verses. You can read the, le- the rest later, but just to get a flavor of what, you, uh, of what Josiah does. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem... He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Surprise! The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all of his heart, with all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense in the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem. 
those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon, the constellations and the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. He burned that there too. He ground it up to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He tore down the quarters of male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord. The quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. On and on and on and on it goes. You can read the rest. 25 verses devoted to proving to you just how much Josiah tried to do to save this situation. And you remember the words of Zephaniah? Perhaps... If you turn from your wicked ways and you follow the Lord in obedience and love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, perhaps God will relent in sending destruction. And we look at this and we say, wow, Josiah followed God with all of his heart. Verse 25 gives the end result. Look at this. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. That's even higher praise than David. Josiah is amazing in what he is doing. He says, we found the Bible in church. Yeah, it scared the priest, but now that we're reading it, we have decided that this is the way that we need to go. Follow me in this. Let's all turn from our wickedness. Let's turn toward, the God, turn toward God. From this day forward, I will follow God with all of my heart. But do you know what always gets me? What always kinds of, kind of frustrates me, if I can be honest here? My least favorite story in all of the Bible is what happens next. I really don't like it. Here's what happens in verse 26, the very next verse. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger. That's how it ends. And later, after that, you know what happens to Josiah? He's put to death. Judah is overtaken by the Babylonians. And so begins the 70-year exile. Why? Why? Josiah did everything he was supposed to do. He was even better than David in following God with all of his heart. God, why? Finally, there's someone who steps in the gap and says, we need to go in this direction. We need to follow God with all of our heart. Why does it end the way that it ends? Well, I'd say the simple answer is because Israel was already too far gone. The redemption of Israel could not come through just one ordinary obedient man. It had to be a cumulative effort. It couldn't be just him. The whole world couldn't be upon his shoulders and everything that just he did. And even though this story always has left a sour taste in my mouth, it was as though I saw it for the very first time this past week. Something so obvious and so beautiful. Look in your Bibles with me. Let's turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3 and look at verse 8. Here's what it says. I want you to see the two things that God does in these verses. God says, therefore, wait for me, Judah, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. 
all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. So there's the justice component. But then we read verse 9. But then I will purify the lips of my people, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrong things that you have done to me. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Wait, what? Verse 8 says, I will pour out my wrath. And verse 17 says, I will rejoice over you with singing. Do you see that word rejoice? That's the Hebrew word sakach, which does mean to rejoice or to delight or to be excited about. But in actuality, what it's trying to communicate, the best description of that word is to frolic. So we have this image, this depiction of God, kind of like a child on Christmas morning who is dancing and singing and frolicking for you, his kids. He's so filled with enthusiastic joy over you. But again, there's that juxtaposition. It's like God's wrath, God's love. Which one is it? God says it's both. How can it be? How does that make any sense? Is it, is it possible that we serve a schizophrenic God, or was Marcion right that there's two different gods at play here? The God of the Old Testament, the Demiurge, the God of the New Testament, the Supreme God, and they're kind of just waging war with each other? But that's the point. God won't tolerate the evil things that people are doing to one another and to his world, but he brings forth justice so that people can flourish and grow and have unity with one another. It's because of God's love that he brings forth his justice. That's the note that I want you to take home with you today. God brings his justice because of his great love for us. That's what verse 8 is all about. My decision, verse 8, is to gather all the nations and pour out my burning anger. And then verse 9, he says, I do that so that the whole world will be purified. And this is how it ends. Verse 19 and 20, take a look. It all ends this way. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. It will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Do you know what Zephaniah is talking about? He's talking about Jesus. See, even though Josiah did everything in his power to save the nation of Israel from certain destruction, it wasn't enough. Why? Because he couldn't fix it. He could try to undo everything that is current so that they had a better future, but he couldn't undo everything that had been done wrong in the past. See, what Israel needed was a new Josiah, a better Josiah, one who could take the entire world upon his shoulders in order to set them all free. No one man could ever possibly do that. See, Josiah is the example that we all need, 
to understand that we all fall short. Josiah is the example that says, picture yourself. Imagine you had the audacity to believe that you are more morally superior than Josiah. Let's just say, for instance, you believe that you are, I don't know, 80% perfect all the time. But 20% of the time, you have turned away from God. Or maybe you'd say, no, I'm 90%. No, 95%. You had the audacity to say, I am 95% perfect, but there's that kind of 5% sin barrier. And Justin, let me tell you, I've, I've never sacrificed my own kid. I've uh, never engaged in prostitution in a church. I would never do things like that. But see, let me ask you a different question. The question isn't, do you comparatively do better than those who are most wicked in the world? The question is, where do you measure up against God's standard? So if you are 95% perfect, let me give you a flight metaphor. Let's say today you decided to fly from Abbotsford to St. Paul, France, and you only flew 5% off course. Do you know where you'd land in the Norwegian Sea over a thousand miles away. And so what God is communicating to us is, you've all fallen short of the glory of God. And even Josiah, who is perhaps the most perfect among us, he couldn't redeem the world. We needed something greater. We needed someone better. And then comes along Jesus who reminds us that salvation doesn't come cheap. It's not the result of the almighty God who, who simply says something like, you know what, I'm just going to wink at sin and wanton evil and say, hey, don't worry about it. Everything's okay. No, forgiveness comes at a cost. The cost of the perfect lamb who bore our sin and shame so that we could be set free. And that's the second and final point. God brought his justice on Jesus so that he can pour out his love on you that's why Zephaniah can end the story the way he does with this amazing picture of God bringing together the lame and the poor and the oppressed and the humble and the meek at heart. And there's this new kingdom, this perfect kingdom, where every single person lives in perfect harmony with one another. This perfect picture. And you think about everyone who's listening to the story in Zephaniah, all they know is that the freight train called the Babylonians is coming. And that reminded me of one of the most amazing things I've ever heard from J.R. Tolkien. And he said this. He wrote an article years ago called On Fairy Stories. And if you like fiction, I really encourage you to read this. It's his theology of fiction, if you can call it that. And he says an amazing thing. He basically says that all good stories are based on the gospel. All of them. Think about it. Here's the gospel story. It goes like this. The idea that all of us here, we live in a world of, of darkness and sin. We're on our way to doom or doom is on its way to us. And a hero shows up. Someone that we wouldn't expect. An avenger. Someone who we don't deserve. But he enters into the gap. He tries to chase off our doom. And always what happens? There's a moment when you think the hero has lost. And now all hope is lost. But he's resurrected in the nick of time. He comes back and he chases away our doom. And all is right in the world again. Every single fictional story you've ever read. Every fable. Every novel. It all goes the same way. But here's the amazing thing. 
the story of Zephaniah is a myth that became fact. It's the only myth that became fact. And the reason why all these fictional stories stir up our hearts is because we know that it must be true if we have a chance. I think again of Zephaniah, the people who are listening to this book. The end result for them is just those last two verses in chapter 3. Future hope, a myth that they have to depend on, but they don't know if it's going to come or not. But now we can see it with perfection. We see that Jesus Christ has come. He has set us free. And we see that, that vision of verse 17, that not only do we rejoice in God, but God rejoices over us. He frolics and dances over you. And so let's do that. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. And then we can frolic and dance to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophet Zephaniah. We thank you that you are a God of justice who brings forth justice so that we can be set free. We thank you, Lord, that the ultimate act of justice was not placed upon our heads, but upon the head of Jesus. Because you knew that we couldn't bear it. We couldn't set ourselves free, just like Josiah found out. And so thank you for sending someone better, someone greater, someone perfect, so that we could have new life with you in glory. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would make us merciful people, that you would make us humble people who meditate upon your word, who turn from evil and from wicked, and so that in that way we can rejoice with you and you could rejoice over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.